from Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to Hollywood Unscripted. I'm your host, Jenny Curtis, and I am thrilled to welcome back our returning guest co-host, Dana Gurrier. You've seen Dana's incredible acting in projects such as The Hateful Eight, Django Unchained, Lee Daniels' The Butler, and American Horror Story. Hi, everyone. Hi, Jenny. Dana, I'm so glad you're back with us. Today, we are thrilled to be talking to Mark Bomback. Mark is a writer and producer of some really badass projects, Live Free or Die Hard, Wolverine, Insurgent, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and War for the Planet of the Apes, and most recently, the creator of the chilling Apple TV Plus series, Defending Jacob. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. This is a stuck-at-home series because of the pandemic, and we like to start with a little check-in of how are you doing, how are you handling being an artist at home during quarantine? Well, you know, I feel almost guilty saying I'm doing pretty well. I'm very lucky. When you're a writer primarily, which is what I am, and you work at home, which is how I work, this is business as usual. And if I'm being really honest, it's almost a bit of an assist for me in that I'm usually needing to get on a plane every now and then to do meetings with folks in LA. And now everybody's so accustomed to doing meetings on Zoom that I'm hoping the the pressure won't be on to return to flying out to LA all the time. So I personally am doing fine. I have four kids. Kids. A lot of my mental energy is actually spent alongside my wife, making sure they're doing okay. It's certainly been tough on them in various ways. But again, they have pretty great lives and they're doing all right too. Thank you for asking. How are you guys doing? I got a little cabin fever at one point because I'm pretty active. I like to be out in the world. But then I just took a deep breath and realized my blessings. Like there are so many things to be worried about and there are so many other people that are in really worse situations. So I had to have like a, you know, a, a long look in the mirror. It's like, okay, you're sad because you're inside. Like, come on relax, you know. We live in Westchester County, New York, which was in the news a bit because it was sort of ground zero for COVID. And so we had a lot, like my brother, my sister-in-law, my next door neighbor, my uncle, I know a lot of people who had it. Fortunately, none of them have died. And then I have another brother and his uh, wife are both doctors who are dealing with COVID on a daily basis. So in a sense, it's weirdly become such a regular part of our lives that I processed a lot of it already. Like I think if you had asked me two months ago or a month and a half ago, I think I was more shell-shocked. Now it's, we're almost feeling hopeful in the sense of the normalcy of going to the supermarket and everybody wearing a mask mm-hmm. and yeah. people really behaving themselves, at least where we live. We haven't had anybody trying to, I was just listening to this report today from folks in Orange County complaining that they have to wear masks and people are luckily very sane out here. It's interesting because for me, I took a lot of this time to kind of ponder what it is to be an artist if you're stuck at home and you're not out creating and what that means really morphed for me. Having the pandemic turn into protests and all of this has basically the, to use an overused phrase, the unprecedented times affected the way you perceive yourself as an artist or what your job is as an artist? Yeah, I mean, very much so. It's funny. There are ideas I was kicking around that I've discarded, that they just feel too superficial. Um, In the ideas that I am kicking around that I haven't done that to yet, I really am looking for ways to ensure that they are relevant to the way we live right now. And I'm also becoming keenly aware of how many things I took for granted on both fronts, right, in terms of the issues that are coming up with the protests, and then also in terms of how much we just took our health and our daily lives for granted. It's funny, I was speaking with an actor who's on a series 
And he was telling me that they were just about to go into production before the pandemic. And now they're rewriting the season because it seems like almost science fiction to not have people wearing masks. And in a sense, again, I, I'm quite lucky in that I wasn't down the road that far with something that now would seem crazy mm-hmm. in either direction. It's a bit of a, of a challenge because very few ideas, at least the ones that I work in, which is a lot of its genre, are able to sort of tackle these things head on without feeling didactic or in some ways too healthy. You know what I mean? Like I like things to be fun and entertaining while also making you think. And that's become only more challenging when you realize what the stakes are. And, you know, it's a good kind of challenge. And I think it's forcing a lot of people, as you were saying, to really reevaluate why you do what you do and what you can contribute from your desk. Yeah. So talking about projects that make you think, we want to start off by jumping into Defending Jacob, because that is a, that is a story. <laughs> I think I, Jenny, did I tell you I binged in like one night? I think. You didn't tell me that. Oh, yeah. It was just incredible, Mark. Bravo. Thank you. I appreciate that. Defending Jacob is a show based on a book by William Landay, where a teenage kid is charged with a murder and how it affects his town and his family. So what brought you to the project? Why this project? So I'm primarily a feature writer, and I was sent the book as a film idea. It had been in development as a film, I think even before the book was published, when it was still a manuscript. And it didn't get to the finish line. And when I got sent the book, it became apparent to me why it might have not gotten there, which is, it's not the kind of movie we make very much anymore. It's the kind of thing we might have made 30 years ago with Harrison Ford, but it's not really the stuff of multiplexes. It's really more the terrain of television. And so while I was reading it, I started thinking in those terms and, you know, I get sent a lot of books and usually you're saying, okay, there's a viable setup here and then I'm going to have to do a lot of invention or I like the basic concept here, but it's not delivering on any of it. This was one of those rare books, not to say it didn't require a significant amount of invention, but it really had thought through its narrative and also its theme in a really substantial way that made it almost impossible not to want to work on it. And so when I was done, I called up the producers who had sent it to me and said, I have no interest in the film version of this, but I would love to try to crack this as a limited series in the vein of stuff that I'd really admired, like True Detective and Broadchurch. And luckily they said yes. And so that's how it came about. Talking about developing from a book, I won't give anything away, but there are some differences between the book and the series, specifically some people who die and some people who don't. What was your motivation for the changes? Well, without spoiling things as well, when I do an adaptation like this, not in any egotistical way, I just have to make it my own. I'm going to live with it for a while. And I'm not doing the book any service by just translating it to the cinema. You know, I, I, I think my job as a screenwriter is to retell the story in the most cinematic way possible. And that has a lot to do with things that in a book are really working in some ways because your imagination is filling in so many blanks. When you literalize that by filming it, things change. And one of those things right out of the gate was the character of Jacob, who in the book is written very, very darkly. And it's really tilted towards an assumption of guilt right from the get-go. And I thought it would be a more engaging television show if you really were on the fence the whole time and really experiencing Jacob the way a parent would, which is he is extremely difficult to read. He is very moody. He is very taciturn, sometimes seems very dark, but again, a lot of teenagers seem that way and have no issues at all. And there are other times that he seems quite sweet. And when I made that decision, that had a really significant ripple effect, not only for how all the story was told, but particularly how the ending was going to lay out. And so without sort of giving away too much about the ending, certain people dying and certain people not dying have a lot to do with who Jacob was as a character. And I think Jacob's character and Lori's character, if you were to read the book and then watch the show, are vastly different in many ways. And I think 
those portraits just really informed how I had to tell the story. So once I committed to those ideas for the characters, I just had to then tell the story with those characters. And those characters didn't want to do some of the things that the characters do in, in the novel. And the other angle is the novel's written in the first person, and it's all from Andy's perspective, the character played by Chris Evans. So you're only privy to scenes that he would be privy to. If he's not physically present in a scene, you wouldn't have been able to read about it in the book. You would hear him tell you about it after the fact. So one of my jobs right from the start was to retell the story in a much more kaleidoscopic fashion where we are accessing the private lives not only of Andy, but of Laurie and of Jacob, and even to an extent of Cherry Jones's character, Klein, or even Betty Gabriel's character, Pam Duffy. And so I was really trying to service lots of different characters' perspectives. And again, in doing that, the story starts to change. And so that's really where a lot of the changes come. I know sometimes people read a book and they'll think that these changes were arbitrary or in some way, oh, the filmmakers think they're smarter than the author and they needed to change things that didn't need changing. I think if you were to really be objective about it, you would see if I had literally just translated the book, it would not have been a particularly satisfying experience. Certainly not the eight hour TV version. Mm. And Jaden Martell, he did such an excellent job. I got a chance to work with him on Midnight Special with Michael Shannon and Joel Edgerton. I love that movie. Consummate professional. He's more professional than a lot of adults I've worked with. You are not the first to say that. Not only fellow actors, but crew I've heard say that as well. I mean, he is a leader. Like I, I took cues from him being an adult and I was like this kid. And he was much younger. You know, Midnight Special was quite a few years ago. You mentioned True Detective, and I was just curious. I got a chance to do season one, and I worked with Nick Pizzolatto and Carrie Fukunaga and those folks. Who are the writers that have influenced your work over the years? I know you make your your work your own, but are you influenced by specific people? It's a tough question to answer, and I totally get why people ask the question, but there's no way to answer without sounding pretentious, so I'll do my best. I would say as certain screenwriters, the way they write, not only in terms of the content, but literally in the writing style, and a lot of the job when you're writing a screenplay is to mimic the sensation of watching a film or, or a television show. And there are certain writers like Bill Goldman, rest in peace, and Paul Schrader and John Sayles. There were certain people, when I would read their scripts, they were so so able to capture the experience of watching a film and really immersing you in it. A screenplay is not a work, as I'm quoting Paul Schrader, actually, it's not a work of art, right? It's, it's a craft. He has this great quote where he says, it's an invitation to others to collaborate on a work of art. And in a sense, it's really a blueprint for the house and everybody pitches in to build the house. But there's nothing particularly beautiful about a screenplay if it's not realized as a movie other than the craft of how did they get you to think you just watched a movie after you put the screenplay down? To me, the writers I really admire are ones who are able to really hone that craft. Again, it's an instruction manual. Look, as an actor, you get the script. Some actors like a lot of parentheticals or stage directions telling them how they should say or not. Others hate it. Yeah. The, the screenwriter's job is to sort of navigate that and really give every person working on the film, from the actors to the DP, even to the editors, certainly to the director, this instruction manual we're all going to follow to try to make this thing that I have in my head. Mm. And it's a document. It's not, again, it's not a novel. If you wanted to write a novel, you should have written a novel. And so those writers that I admire are ones who really take the craft of screenwriting as a craft, very seriously. Like this kind of screenwriting I don't like and I won't name names are the ones that think it's really cute to sort of editorialize all along the way. And it's a cheat in my opinion, to sort of either give you 
a sense of what a character's thinking when they haven't done the work of doing it either through action and dialogue, which are really the only two tools you have as a screenwriter, or they'll sort of make a joke within the stage directions that's literally just for the reader to laugh at this joke. I, everyone has their process, right? But for me, the writers I really valued are the ones that showed me how to capture the tone of the thing that you're trying to make in the writing itself. And that is probably the most elusive thing to communicate as a writer to the people working on the film. But again, it's to me disingenuous to think of this writing as the same kind of writing as a novel or even as a play. It's not meant to be read. It's meant to be created. So that's where I come from with it. Defending Jacob absolutely had that tone from the first nanosecond it began till the end. Yeah, I mean, I think if you were to read the scripts that I wrote, the thing I'd be proud of is that you would say, I understand how that tone is on the screen. I'm getting it from the writing here. Like it's trying to suggest it without saying explicitly, here's where the camera is and here's where the lighting is going. And it's just giving the people whose job it is to really be creative on their own right in terms of the lighting and the, and the camera. It's giving them that nudge towards like, here's what I'm trying to make you feel while reading it. Because it would be foolish of me to think I know cinematography or editing or any of these other jobs better than the people who are hired to do it or acting. And it's why I try to avoid parentheticals at all costs is I, I don't know how best to say this line. That's what you're there for. My job is to give you the world of this thing and really immerse you in it enough so that you're making a choice that feels true to you and true to me. And ideally something that surprises me, the writer, and makes it even better than I thought it could be. And for me to sort of wall off every decision with lots of explanation robs you of your job and other people of theirs. Being the showrunner of Defending Jacob, though, has that changed your, your process or your approach in any way since it is a different role than strictly screenwriter? Yeah, I mean, it was a huge learning curve. I had done a little bit of producing on other things, but not to this extent. And when you're the showrunner, people are looking to you for lots of answers. Now, I was benefited by having one director direct all eight episodes. So a lot of answers they could get from Morton Tildum, the director as well. But you're making every hiring decision from casting to crew. A lot of that stuff gets, you know, I'll hire one crew person who then hires their team. But you're still involved in these decisions. And, you know, it's funny, there was one time where I was on set helping the rehearsal and I sat back in my seat and I was, huh, I just freaked out. And the script supervisor, who I was very, very close to by the end of the process, said to me, oh my God, that seemed like a relatively small problem. I would think you've done enough work that that wouldn't have freaked you out. And I was like, I could do that, that little note session we did in my sleep, but I've never had to do it knowing that we only have two hours left to shoot today, that we're losing this location in two days, that we have a costume issue that's coming on the horizon tomorrow. All these things are also in your head while you're doing yeah. the one job you're supposed to do, which is the writing part. And that's probably the biggest challenge. And it really raised my game as a producer. And it was probably the part of the job when I was done with it, I was most satisfied by is I really felt like I had done that role in a way that I couldn't have done it when I started. And so that was quite gratifying. It makes me feel so much better to hear that you kind of had like a freak out moment because we don't think of folks on your level, like still trying to as you go, we're still a pupil, you know what I mean, all, all, along the entire ride, you know? I would say there are a few people who witness it more regularly than others, but it's interesting. I freak out more in the micros. What's interesting about the shooting of something like this versus the writing of this is I feel like I have all the time in the world when I'm writing. Even if I know they're waiting on a script tomorrow and it's five o'clock now, I'm like, all right, so I'll just stay up all night if I need to. I, I just feel like time is never the enemy. And when you're shooting, time is always the enemy. And I'm always aware that what we just shot, especially on something like this, which I think we shot for like 113 days, you're never going back, right? Like once we shot that scene, 
we don't have the luxury. We were on such a tight schedule of saying we're going to reshoot that scene later unless it is a complete disaster. So every decision we've made, we've more or less committed to. And the difference between a film where we're like, well, it's two hour running time. These things will piece together. This was an eight hour running time. So a bad decision in there could potentially have a domino effect for a lot of other things that we're relying on that scene to make sense. And that's the anxiety that I probably lived with the most. Yeah. It's a job. So you talked about the hiring process. Chris Evans was attached as soon as the series was picked up. Is that correct? Actually, before. Basically, the producers had the book. They hired me to write a pilot script and a Bible for the show. You know, it was like a 12, 13-page document that just laid out how I thought the episodes might be structured. If you always to look at that now, it probably bears maybe a passing resemblance to the show itself, but it was a starting point. And then the producers felt we'd had the strongest hand going into buyers with the director and an actor attached. So they had been working with Morton Tildem on something. I met with Morton. We hit it off right away. We had the exact same reference. The number one reference for us was Mystic River. And we were like, that's what we want the show to feel like. And the fact that he said it without my prompting him, it just felt like karma. And so we, we both joined forces. And then we went on the actor search. And as you can imagine, it's quite hard to get an actor attached to something when it doesn't have a home yet. And you're asking for an actor to commit to a really long shoot. And Chris's name came up and we jumped on it for a lot of reasons, but he wasn't the most obvious choice. And in some ways that was one of the reasons that appealed to me the most. There were some actors who were like, oh, I get why you would think about that person. But Chris seemed a little young for the part, seemed a little too good looking for the part. There were things about it that you could see on first blush being a challenge. And that was really exciting to me. And so we met with Chris and he seemed to have the same take. Like he had never played a father before. He's not a married guy. He doesn't have any children, but he's really close to his own father. He lives in that part of the world. In fact, really lives there now and also grew up there and really knows those people and wanted to work on a story that was set there and felt like he understood what we were trying to do with the character where he's had it too good in some ways. Even though he's had a very, very tough life, he's someone that on the outside you can see other people envying or admiring. And that kind of person, when things start to crash down around them, there's a certain amount of schadenfreude that happens in a community. And I think he's good casting for that idea. And he also just exudes intelligence. I didn't have to do a lot of work to believe he was a lawyer and a very successful one at that. I didn't have to do a lot of work to believe that he would love his son very much and he would have a wife who loves him and he loves, like he has a lot of warmth, you feel that. So there's a lot of tools he brings just as an actor and as a person that were invaluable as well. And so we wooed him to the point where he finally, you know, he, he had reservations because nothing I'd written really resembled this very much. Morton's direction certainly gave him a lot of confidence, but Morton couldn't point to one thing and say it's going to be just like this. He had to take a leap of faith with us as well. And it was also asking him to commit six months of his life to something. And I will say he would even admit one of the appeals was that he was able to sleep in his own bed every night while we shot. And he did love that world. And he really liked the scripts that he'd been reading. And, and so I think he came on after, I think I'd written two scripts at that point. And he came on and Apple immediately jumped on board. And then Michelle Dockery, who plays Lori. My goodness, she is fantastic. Amazing. so extraordinary. Another person who doesn't have kids, isn't married, but again, is very close to their family and wanted to explore that side of herself. And I think in some ways, both she and Chris were able to do things that they maybe would not have done had they been channeling their own actual motherhood or fatherhood, that they were sort of reaching in places that were both child and parent within them and 
really solving things that way. And they're both really gifted storytellers. Like even conversationally, if they're going to tell you an anecdote, it's very well told. Like they're just very charming storytellers. And I would rely on both of them to break story ideas sometimes. If we were working on a scene and I didn't think it was right, they would often be the people I'd go to first to say, can we spitball what's going wrong? Even if they were okay with the scene, I'd say something's bumping. Can we talk this through? And they were often people who came up with the solutions as well as myself and Morton. So I got super lucky with them. And they're both pros. They show up on time. They work their butts off. They set a great tone for everyone else on the set. And they're always willing to do another take. And oftentimes, if we think we have it, they'll say, I have another idea. Can we just go once again? And we got really, really lucky because it is an arduous, arduous schedule when you're doing these eight-hour things. Yeah. I do have a question I'm sure you've been asked a million times. Do you think Jacob did it? I'm going to give you my very coy answer, which is it's the worst answer. I think I only care about whether or not I think his parents think he did it. Like to me, at the end of the day, and this I guess is a spoiler, it turns out to be not so much about did he do it or did he not do it, but about the prison you're in as a parent where you're never going to know ultimately your child. Like you're only going to know your child to the extent that your child is going to allow you to do that or your spouse. And it's about those boundaries with the people we love that are ultimately impermeable that is the heartbeat of the show. And so it's funny, there have been people who certainly have complained to me, you didn't solve it for me. And in my opinion, like if I had really solved it, it's a binary thing. Either he did or he didn't do it. You've entertained both possibilities after eight hours. So I'm not so sure you'd be super satisfied with either answer. I was most satisfied as a writer with following through the parents to the logical, somewhat horrible place they arrive in being just shy of ever having certainty. Mm -hmm. And that that's ultimately the big takeaway. That is a very quiet answer. Okay, so one more that's similar. All right. Did you tell Jaden, who plays Jacob, what you thought? Or did you let Jaden decide for himself? Well, Morton, the director, had a really clever take on this, which is before we even began, he said to Jaden, I want you to decide if you've done it or if you've not done it. I want you to make a firm decision there and not tell anyone ever. And I know what his decision was. He told me in post, <laughs> but he didn't tell anyone while we shot. And um, I think it helped everyone feeling like at least the actor knows the truth. Mm -hmm. And there were some scenes where uh, Morton or myself would encourage Jaden to play it more one way or another. And that was simply for the sake of having options in the editing room later. But it would have screwed everything up, I think. Uh, and, and Chris and Michelle didn't want to know if he did it or not. It would have messed everybody's heads up. Yeah. It's such a goosebumpy, this is a, not a great adjective, or maybe it is, who knows? I'm not a writer, <laughs> but it's such a... a a goosebumpy thriller. So were there days on set where you could just feel that or does that come in post? I would say the trial days when we actually shot the trial were the ones where you every now and then got chills because there were monologues that we would just let run. We had two phenomenal actors in Cherry Jones and, and Pablo Schreiber. And so when they would go on a run, you would feel like you were watching great theater for a minute. Mm. And Cherry actually used to say, I feel like this is theater. The set was so fully realized by Patty Podesta, our set designer, that you really did feel like you were watching an in-the-round theater production uh, times. And because Cherry is Cherry, she really gives it every single take. And so, yes, there were goosebumpy times. But I will say, because it was such a heavy show, there was a lot of laughing. You know, I think every time we would yell cut, like someone felt the urge to do something to break up other people just to alleviate... We would have been in trouble if we had an actor on set who said, you're screwing me up. We have to be super serious. It was too heavy. And we were talking about not only murder, but the murder of a child by a child. It's just such a heavy duty idea. Yeah. 
And Jaden too, I mean, Jaden is like one of the adults and he was very good about sort of having fun with it when we'd yell cut. And, you know, like it just, it was a very, really enjoyable set to be on. And I will say, everyone says it's about their crews, but this crew we had in Boston, they were just the greatest people ever. A lot of the guys were into ping pong. We had the defending Jacob ping pong tournament every week and we were keeping tallies and bottles of tequila were the prize. And we had parties all the time for the crew and everybody just really felt like they were working on something they were proud of. And I think it was in part because it was set exactly where we were shooting it. And so people would say, oh my God, I know this pizza place we're shooting and I eat pizza here and it's functioning as the same pizza place. And there's something about that. You don't get to do that all the time. A lot of times Boston's doubling for other places in New England or even other cities. And in this case, they were really making a show about that part of suburbia and um, it made it all the more special. If you're like us, you're looking for a way to make stay at home a little more special. Well, we're gonna let you in on our secret. Join Rob Vices to get luxury cocktail kits, toys, tools, tech, and other incredible items delivered straight to your home on a monthly basis. The value is incredible. Your first box is going to be a $400 tequila curation, and you can sign up for as little as 99 bucks a month. Use the code PODCAST and you'll save an extra 50 bucks at sign up. So head to robvices.com to bring exciting experiences safely to your door. Remember, use the code podcast and go to robbvices.com. We'll come back to Defending Jacob, but we wanted to jump back. How did you get into the film world? Um, I know you studied film studies and English lit at school, correct? I did. I did. Um, I came to that even late. I kind of got into that in my sophomore year. And I went to Wesleyan University, which has a really interesting film studies program headed by uh, a woman named Janine Bassinger. And it's really about theory and gave me a really solid foundation. But it's not one of those schools that prepares you for a career in filmmaking. Mm -hmm. I moved out to LA with my friend from college and nobody in my family had ever worked in entertainment. Nobody had actually ever lived west of the Mississippi River. In fact, I'm not so sure anyone ever left that side of New York. And so my friend and I moved out there and through a friend of a friend of a friend, I got a job in the mailroom at a company called Savoy Pictures, which doesn't exist anymore. And I met my wife there, which was a big plus. And I sort of zeroed in on a woman in production whose job it was was to buy scripts. I volunteered to write coverage for her because I knew I wanted to screenwrite at that point. And she was like, anyone who wants to write coverage for free, you know, great. And so I was, every night after pushing the mail cart around, I'd go back to my apartment and I would read a script or two and write these book reports on the scripts. And I would really try to do a good job on the writing itself so that she could say, oh, this is someone who knows how to retell a story. Even if he's saying pass on the script, I'm following the story. And in my comments, I try to show some semblance of intellectual ability in terms of how to think about a movie. And so after a few months, I eventually confessed that I wanted to be a screenwriter myself. And when it was finally time for me to quit, I asked her if she would read one of my screenplays and she did. And I vividly remember she called me into her office and she said, this is never going to sell. It's not good enough. But I think I can get you a meeting with a couple of agents who are new and looking for clients. And so she introduced me to a few. One of them, I honestly think had been made an agent like the week before. And he said, I can't sign you. This isn't good enough to sell, but keep in touch. And I just got a good vibe off him. Like he seemed like a human being and I just liked him. And so 
every few months I would check in and I, I actually had a job at that time working for Glenn Fry of the rock band, the Eagles, and they were going on tour. And I, even though he's like the last person you would think is an Eagles fan, which he isn't, I would send him Eagles t-shirts, anything I could do to sort of butter him up. And, and I would say, yeah, I'm working on a new script. What do you think of this? And what do you think of that? And eventually I wrote something that he said, okay, I think this we can sell. And that's how I got started. So we sold it to Warner Brothers and it never became a movie. I've read it, you know, not so long ago. It's horrible. And um, I was a beneficiary of that time. And this was 1995. Uh, no, 96, actually. I moved out there in 94. When they were just buying tons of spec scripts and franchises weren't all their age yet. And so you could sell a spec script a lot easier than you can now. And so I got lucky. I don't know how I'd break in now, but back then it was a mediocre script with a good concept that Warner Brothers bought, shirts sitting on a shelf somewhere. And then I did this thing that in hindsight was really smart. I didn't have anyone to sort of coach me, but I just had this gut instinct, which is say no to nothing. Like any opportunity you have, jump on it. So I would go in for a meeting and a producer would say, we're looking to do a, a classic story in a sci-fi setting. And I would literally just say the first thing, I was like, mutiny on the bounty, but the bounty is a spaceship. And they were like, great, <laughs> go buy it. And I, you know, that script was horrible too. Like, but I was able to just keep working and selling script after script. And then I would get rewriting jobs that I also had no business doing, but I would just get myself in the door. And it's like that Malcolm Gladwell thing, which is really true. You need 10 years, about 10,000 hours of doing anything to get decent at it. And when I look back on my career, it didn't take a total of 10 years, but it certainly was about 10,000 hours worth of work before the scripts start resembling anything that you can actually be proud of. And embarrassingly enough, I think I got like two movies made before I'd hit that point. And those movies reflect that, you know, like I wasn't there yet. And like the first real produced credit I had was this movie Godsend, which is horrible. Like, I, you know, I, I hate to say it, it just turned out poorly for a variety of reasons. But one of them is that I really had no business having a movie made just yet. I should have had someone, either a director or someone should have stepped in and said, you need a lot of help here. Huh. Either we're going to bring in another writer to mentor you or I know how to mentor you, but I didn't really have that guidance. Is it? that there were five different endings to the film? Yeah, it's amazingly true. There are five different endings to Godson. It was like Choose Your Own Adventure, which you would think a horror movie wouldn't really need that many endings. And what's amazing also is they're all, it actually would be work to think of five bad endings for a movie. <laughs> uh, one of them just by just law of averages would be okay, but they're all bad in their own way. Again, I was green and I was really excited. We cast Robert De Niro. And so when I was asked to do a note by whomever, and the answer was, yes, surely, of course I'll do that note. And not, this doesn't feel right. Can we talk this through? Yeah. I was just so afraid of getting fired. And so you learn a lot. And I was very, very lucky I got other at-bats. I would say part of the reason was that I had been working so hard up to that point that other opportunities were already percolating so that I wasn't swamped by that movie's failure. I was already sort of onto the next chapter with other projects. So, But y your next at bat was Live Free or Die Hard? No, I was actually including the rewrite had done before Godsend, a movie called The Night Caller, which is luckily unavailable in any format. I think you'd have to have like a used <laughs> DVD somewhere. So it is not watchable literally and figuratively. And so that doesn't exist. But that was the other movie I was thinking of. Live Free or Die Hard, I was just at the cusp of knowing what I was doing. And I also had a director who was really good at helping me get there in Len Weissman. And it really helped also that I had the buoyancy of a franchise that 
already had a language to it. And I was stepping into the language of that franchise. That really helped. I mean, that's a huge franchise to step into being green. Really, really lucky, really lucky. So what happened was, again, I did all these rewrites. So one of the rewrites I was doing was for a movie that Dean Pariseau was directing that was starring Bruce Willis. And I was doing the writing on it. And Bruce liked me for this little period of time, even though the movie didn't get to the finish line. He was being a little impulsive, probably. And he's like, this is the guy to write the next Die Hard movie. So it was almost him flexing and saying, I'm going to make Fox hire this person they would never ordinarily hire. And he used to have this line. He would say, who's your backup choice to play John McClane? And, you know, obviously there's no such thing. (laughs) So I was the beneficiary of his muscle. And I knew I had this one shot of ever getting a chance to work on something that big, given my non-existent credits. And so... I killed myself working on that script. Just, I vetted it with every friend of mine I knew. Just this feel like a diehard movie? And it was, I'd say that first draft probably resembles the finished movie at most about 50%, but it had enough in it that the studio said, oh, this guy actually wrote a diehard movie and they kept me on the movie. There was one or two guys who came in to have to rewrite me in certain spots, mostly Bruce Willis instigated, but it was still my movie enough that it was really a huge game changer for me as a writer. And that's where you met Len Wiseman? Yes, that's where we met. And then later on when he was doing Total Recall, he asked me to come in and help him out with that. I obviously don't know everyone you've worked with, but you don't seem to be someone who repeats collaborators a lot, or am I wrong in that? Oh, that's actually not true. I mean, I could see why you'd say that if you just glance at the IMDb page, but like James Mangold, I worked with on a bunch of stuff. So we did The Wolverine together. I also helped him out for a little bit during Logan, just polishing some things up. But we had like two other projects we've tried to write together. And Matt Reeves, with whom I did the two Planet of the Apes movies, those were back to back. That was like five years of our lives. And he's truly one of my closest friends in, in the world. And Len is another example of someone who I've worked with again. And even producers I sort of circle back to. I have people that I, I like, but the truth is, I'm sure you guys both know this as artists yourself, you're kind of on a project by project basis. So if you're not lining up where you are, where they are, unless you're going to become a team of some sort, you can't rely on those collaborations yeah. to keep you working. So if someone I worked with before calls me up and says, I have something I want you to look at, and it's someone I had a great experience with, that will sort of jump to the top of the pile and I'll focus on that more. And I've really tried as I get older to steer away from people with whom I haven't had a great experience and say, okay, you know, the dog bites you once, it's a dog's fault. But life is too short to sort of work with people who aren't great to work with. So I've tried to avoid those folks too. Mm -hmm. But I've been lucky. I mean, again, Matt is a great example of someone who we met by circumstance, like I had, I had done some rewriting on Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and then I was writing Dawn of the Planet of the Apes when Rupert Wyatt, the director from Rise, who was doing Dawn, walked off the movie, and Matt was brought on, and Matt said, we need to start over. This isn't really the movie I want to make, and do you want to write that? And it was this arranged marriage where we, if we didn't vibe, we would have just said, well, this isn't meant to be. And now that I look back, it's amazing that we did, because we're both very, uh, not antisocial, but we take a little while to warm up to another person in those situations. And we just had this love connection where we really got along great. And it, it definitely blossomed as we worked on that movie. So that when the studio said, you want to do another movie together with War, we did the thing that neither of us had done before. We, well, Matt had done it before, but I'd never really co-written with someone before. And we said, let's write it literally together from beginning to end. And so it's the only credit I have where you'll see an ampersand. You know, the difference between the A and D and the ampersand is they were rewriting each other or they wrote it together. And it's my only ampersand uh, credit. Speaking of that, Jenny and I were talking about how there are so many projects that you've polished and it sounds like you just sprinkle a little magic or a lot of magic 
and make a script better? And I, I guess it's a question about your ego. Do you ever feel that you are not recognized in a way that you should, or you know what you did for a project that the wider public will never know? And, and how does that work? I'm very fortunate. I never feel that way. For one thing, they pay you a premium right. to write this way. And part of that money is like, get over yourself. You're not <laughs> going to get any credit for this. And so every now and then I'll mention that I worked on something or someone else will mention it. Yeah. And it's not a secret that a lot of times writers will come in and just back clean up just to get something ready to go. What I love about those jobs is that people have been working really hard. They're exhausted. And usually it's not because someone is screwed up. It's that they're just written out. They're just like, we need a new brain in the room. And they're usually pretty close to production and they wouldn't spend this money. And so they bring someone like me in. And my job oftentimes is to be the arbiter, to sit there and say, okay, what are people disagreeing about? Right? Like, so like the producers usually have one take, director will have another take, studio will have another take. And oftentimes they'll call you behind each other's backs and say, listen, don't tell the director I said this, but what really is not working is this. Or the studio will say, listen, the producers are looking to spend a lot of money. We're not. We need to bring this in order. Everybody will have their secret agenda and then their professed agenda. My job is to take all that information and try to make everybody compromisingly satisfied. That's not a word, but that's <laughs> the idea. Is that like, you know... My job is ultimately to service the director more than anyone else because she or he is the person through whose eyes you're actually watching this thing and it will be a bad movie if they don't believe in the movie. So that's really my job. And the studio and the producers would readily agree that's the most important job of the screenwriter is to make sure what the director is trying to convey is getting on the page. Mm -hmm. Again, in this instruction manual that he or she is going to need to give everyone else. And so that's my number one job. But... I'm, I also will say to the director, listen, the studio is really concerned about this. They've called me three times about this. Let's address this because either we do it now or you're going to be dealing with it in post when they have all the leverage you can. Let's like, let's fix it now. So a lot of it is just mediating, thinking through everyone's ideas. And then what I often describe what I do is like, this is going to sound a little bit hoity-toity, but it's true. I just try to find the emotional truth of what every scene is trying to accomplish. Oftentimes I find when scripts are getting screwed up, it's that people have lost the truth of the scene and they've gotten hung up on, is it scary enough? Is it explosive enough? Is it dark enough? Is it funny enough? Or like I had this big inspiration that doesn't actually belong in this movie, but I forced it into this movie and now we're all married to it because it's been in five drafts. So my job is to come in and say, we're not married to anything. Here's what you, I think the scene is really about, right? Like this is the only thing we should be thinking about is what do we accomplish in this scene story-wise, character-wise, thematically, those three. And why is it not getting there yet? And then I'll say, can I make a suggestion? What if we do this? And more often than not, they'll say, oh, let's see that. That's a good idea. And while I'm doing it, I have this huge assist from people who've been thinking about this movie for years. So the director will have inserted some ideas in there and the producers will. And of course, the writer who I'm rewriting has given me tons of great raw material. I try not to ever fix anything that's not broken. I really try to be super respectful of whoever it is that I'm rewriting. But I also bear in mind that it's blueprints. And, you know, if they put the bathroom in the wrong part of the house, I get it. They drew a beautiful bathroom. It's in the wrong part of the house. So my job is to relocate the bathroom. Yeah, I'll stretch this metaphor to death. But it's a hard job to be entrusted with because it's a chicken and the egg thing. You only can get really good at it with practice. And yet it's really hard to get hired to do those things. And I've just been lucky that the few ones I started doing turned out well. And so now it's often word of mouth. Someone will say, we're in trouble here. We have big script problems and we're starting to shoot in a few weeks. Who did you like when you worked on whatever? And they might say, oh, we had a good experience with Mark. You should 
call him. And I always say, even though the money is really great, I will immediately say, if I don't think I can do a good job, I have no business taking your money. Not only because it's just unethical to take your money, but because like you're in a bind here, like you're shooting in four weeks. You don't need me coming in here without really a firm sense that I can be of help. It's really irresponsible. Because I know what it's like to be on the other side of that. I've been in pickles all the time with my own writing and you want someone to rescue you. You don't want someone to say they know what they're doing and the minute the check comes in, they say, oh, this is harder than I thought. Like there's a, there's a weekly that someone's asking me to do that I'm having a conversation about in tomorrow or Friday. And that I know in my head that conversation is entirely about me making sure that I really feel I'm on the same page as the director because there's things in the script that I don't understand. And if I feel they're coming from him and this is what he's trying to accomplish, then we're probably not going to be a great team, you know. This might be an unfair question, but is there a joy to rewriting in the way that there's a joy to creating your own projects or is it kind of just a job? It's a different joy. Yeah, there's certainly a joy. Part of the fun is that you don't have the same emotional investment in it. You do have the emotional investment in terms of the quality of the thing you're trying to make, but you haven't been living with this for years. You haven't been like talking about a dinner with your spouse for months, you know, like it's new to you. And truthfully, your name won't be on it. And so your career is not going to be tanked by the performance of this movie. So you're really in this privileged position of only caring about the quality of the work in the moment. And I love it when I turn in a weekly drafter, and usually on a weekly, by the way, you're turning in almost daily. You're, you're just wow. turning of feedback. And when a director or an actor or whoever says, oh my God, now I finally love this scene and I've always wanted to love this scene and now I love it. It's oftentimes much more gratifying than if it's me telling myself that, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not really the same charge and I'm usually wrong. I'm usually then realizing months down the line that I thought it was better than it was. So I find I have a lot more objectivity, which is truthfully, I think most writers would say is one of the biggest challenges when you're writing is, at least for myself, it's very hard to get an accurate temperature read on how good or bad your work yeah. is without some distance. And, you know, I'm lucky. I have a very a, a small group of friends who I trust to read everything. But somehow that objectivity is much more attainable when it's not my script that I'm starting with. I can really rewrite the scene and say, okay, this feels like a better thing than they just had. And it's still in the spirit of what this other writer created. And I do think... Sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes those writers, if I've redone something for them, would probably be grateful, like, oh, that's what I was trying to do. I didn't get there all the way. In the same way that Live For Your Die Hard is a good example. There are moments in that script that I didn't write that I'm like, gee, I'm glad they figured that out. I remember thinking that scene was a little undercooked. They, they got it there. And oftentimes you don't even need a writer to do that. A director and an actor can figure that out on set. But I don't begrudge when that happens to me. I'd begrudge it if the movie was worse, if they messed it up and I thought it was better the way that we had it. But, you know, I would struggle really hard to never have that be the outcome of something I'm doing a, a weekly on. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic read extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dreams. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. It's going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are... The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. 
Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkcocom slash a moment of your time. Before we run out of time, most everything you've done is in the writing field and the producing field, but I've noticed that you are an executive producer on a film called The United States versus Billie Holiday, I am, yes. which our own Dana Gurrier is in. <laughs> yes. So what happened was that was brought to me by a producer, uh, Jeff Kirschenbaum. He said, we've all this book about this uh, part of the book involves this period of time where Billie Holiday was being targeted by the very nascent, really the beginning of the drug wars. Like she was the poster child for heroin abuse and all kinds of racist agendas were underneath it and social agendas and really wasn't very much about drugs themselves, as we all know. And so anyway, I, I looked at it and I said, look, I'll be honest with you. I'd love to write this. I have no business writing this. So I don't want to see the Mark Bombeck version of this movie. Uh, I understand. And I said, but I'd love to be involved. I'm a huge jazz fan and a Billie Holiday fan in particular. And I'd love to watch it get made. Can I be involved in a producerial capacity and maybe help whoever it is writing it just with the screen craft, you know? And Jeff said, That's, I'm amenable to that if we can find the right writer. Is anyone you have in mind? And I said, well, my dream person, right? Like pie in the sky. I don't know her from a hole in the wall is Susan Laurie Parks. I didn't know that was your idea. Oh, yeah, oh. yeah. Well, I said, you know, so unreachable, like beyond. That was like the, the, again, like the wish list person. And Jeff said, well, well, you never know until you try. Let's reach out to her agent. And so we reached out and SLP very sort of wisely said, I want to meet first. And I suspect you're only doing this because you need a black woman to write this. And it's not really about me. And so we met. And I assured her I'd seen Top Dog Underdog and was blown away by it and just a huge fan. And I think really gave her a lot of assurance that she was the person I wanted to watch this movie through the eyes of in some way. And we had just the most wonderful collaboration ever because I had the privilege of watching her work, really someone who's just beyond gifted as a writer. And she didn't have a ton of experience screenwriting. She has a massive amount of experience playwriting. And so I was able to, I mean, we'd sit in the Pan Quotidian in Washington Square Park and literally just the mechanics of screenplay where I would read her draft and say, here's why it doesn't feel movie-ish enough. What if you did this? And she's so gracious. She would say, oh my God, I love that. Let me go back and do that. And we really had this just beyond my wildest expectations of what it would be like to work with an artist at that level. And so that's how that came about. And then Lee read the script and was, you know, duly blown away by it because it was a beautifully written script. And then it became Lee Daniels' film. And so he went off to the races and that's where we are. So I haven't seen a cut yet or else I'd speak to it. Lee's being very territorial with this cut. So hopefully we'll see it soon. I have very high hopes because I think he's very gifted. And of course, like his passion is infectious as, as you know, I'm sure you know, Dana, like he's just, everybody feels it. And then everybody gets on the same page and he's really good at rallying the troops. You know, it's funny, there's one moment dead of winter and it was SLP, Lee and myself in Lee's apartment in Hell's Kitchen going over a draft. And I was like, I cannot believe I'm the white guy who gets this chance. Like, I have, nothing on my resume would suggest that I get this opportunity. If you look at Planet of the Apes and Live for Your Die Hard and stuff. But I was there really as a screenwriter and just like, what are the mechanics that we could better exploit in the telling of the story? And again, really just really honored to have been a part of the process and guardedly very optimistic that it's going to be awesome. It was an extraordinary time in Montreal when we shot up there. And, you know, a Lee set is the crazy zany set. And I always feel like I learned something. And Susan Laurie Parks, I mean, like you, I saw Top Dog Underdog on Broadway with Most Def and uh, Jeffrey Wright. Yeah. And I remember just kind of falling in love with her words. And then when I found out that she'd written a script, 
I was just literally blown away. I mean, for me, opening up an email that's from Susan Lori Parks and then, and then pages that literally the only person who is reading these pages besides her is me was really thrilling. And I would always say it to her and she's so modest. She was always like, oh, you know, come on. But it was really one of my, if not the highlights of my career. You know, I've had a couple of moments in my career where you get these opportunities because of what you do to interact with people who you just really admire. And she was one of them. And I just, again, like I would work with her every day of the week if I could. That's awesome. I want to loop back to defending Jacob just before we close up. Do you have a favorite memory from the shoot or from the writing process, anything throughout the whole production? It's funny. I, I had never thought about that question, but I'll tell you the first thought that popped in my head which was the very last uh, day of shooting the rap. I'd never really been a showrunner before and I didn't really know what that job meant when you rap. And so I had this awesome assistant and I had said to her, I think we should have champagne on set. Ordinarily, someone else would take care of this, but I have a feeling I'm the one who's supposed to take care of this. And she's like, no one else is taking care of it. So I said, run to the liquor store and just buy like a case of champagne and get it back to set. We're wrapping in like two hours. And she doesn't drink. And so she didn't even know what, I had to like be on the phone with her explaining what the what the labels were. And I remember we, it was in Chris and Michelle's bedroom and it was a very inconsequential scene, if I'm remembering correctly. It was like just a throwaway scene compared to others. And that was it. We had been working forever and we were done, at least in Boston. And they yelled rap. And my assistant walked in with this case of champagne. And I realized that maybe they don't do this all the time when you rap. And people were really excited. And I felt like I had done my job in this one moment. And I have a cell phone video from that, just like panning around at everybody, hugging each other. And, you know, watching Chris Evans, Captain America, hugging the craft service guy, who's then in turn hugging the DP. Like it just, it, you really do create a family when you work this way. And it's probably my favorite memory of the, of the making of the show. So having been through it, would you be a showrunner again? In a heartbeat. I mean, there are a lot of things I've learned and that I would do very differently, but I would love to do it again. You know, the only caveat is that it has to be something I loved as much as this, because you really have to think about the same story for two plus years every single day. And if you're not super into it, it, you're not going to get great works. The story is Defending Jacob. It's on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, Dana, thank you for being a wonderful co-host again. And Mark, it has been just a joy. Thank you so much. Truly my pleasure. It's been really nice to meet you both. And Dana, I'll see you at the premiere. Yes, we'll see each other then. <laughs> I can't. Okay. guys. <laughs> this has been another special episode of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. Hollywood Unscripted is created by Kurt Co. Media. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Jenny Curtis. Thank you to our amazing guest co-host, Dana Gurrier, and our incredible guest, Mark Bomback. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Make sure to subscribe because we'll continue bringing you special episodes of Hollywood Unscripted stuck at home. We'd also love to hear from you. Leave a rating and a review and tell us what you think. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. <laughs> <laughs>